It is not an uncommon thing in a church that finds itself vacant, as we put it, though this is hardly vacant, but missing the lead pastor to say, well, let's hurry and go find one. There's a bunch of them out there. And there are many who wonder, why do we need to take time to study and listen and survey and consider? I remember the last time I did this job, someone came up to me in the parking lot the first Sunday after I preached said, uh, Pastor, it's really nice to have you here for a couple of months while we wait for the next guy. It might be a little longer than that, folks, to find out what it is that God has projected for Ivan Rest Church. This morning, I would invite your attention to a reading in 1 Samuel. And as you look for page 216 to follow along in your pew Bibles, I want to say to you that I was struck last week when I came here for the first time that Pastor Jeff Vandermolen, who was here last Sunday, whom I know but with whom I had not spoken at all, was led by God to read from 1 Samuel 3 without knowing that this Sunday I had been led to speak from 1 Samuel 4, to pave the way and remind us how important it is to listen to what it is God is telling us and to hear from a brief passage in chapter 4 and then some verses from chapter 7 as well, trying to help us know how to position ourselves on the edge of the future together. The Word of God from 1 Samuel 4, the first 11 verses. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring this defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no! Nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent, 
The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now to the seventh chapter, just turn the page over, starting at verse 2. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there, were, there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. <clears throat> from year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. <clears throat> it's not very big, but I put a pile of stones up here this morning that I bought up north a few years ago when the lake level in Lake Michigan was really low. Cairns, stacks of rocks, became the rage. They were selling them all over the place. And our family decided to make some. So we made cairns at the edge of the point of Old Mission Peninsula and in the water at the edge of the point 
of the Leelanau Peninsula. And just a few weeks ago, we went back, not for the first time, but we went back, and there's no beach anymore. No rocks anywhere, no cairns to be seen. But I bought one and decided to put it up here and say, just watch it during this message, and maybe you'll find a stack of something to stand <clears throat> as a reminder to you this morning. But let me start by telling you a little bit about Larry Walters. Larry Walters was a truck driver, but his dream was to be a pilot. The sad thing is that Larry's eyes were bad and that prevented him from being a pilot, but it never prevented him from dreaming about it. <clears throat> and one day, sitting in a chase lounge in his backyard, Larry had an inspiration. He got up and went somewhere and bought a tank of helium and then stopped at the Army-Navy surplus store and bought 45 weather balloons. Now, these are not birthday party balloons. These are balloons that, when inflated, are four feet wide. Forty-five of them. He took all his stuff home, fastened the uninflated balloons to his chase lounge. Then he fastened his chair to the bumper of his Jeep. Then he inflated the balloons and packed a lunch and got out his BB gun and loaded it and thought, when I get up there a ways and it's time to land, I'll just shoot a few of those balloons and float lazily down to the ground. He climbed in his chair and he cut the tether. Now, the idea was to just float up a couple of hundred feet, see what the earth looked like from there. And then to shoot a select number of those balloons and float just as lazily down again to land. That's what he thought would happen, but that's not what happened. When he cut the tether, his chair didn't float up, it shot up. And that a couple of hundred feet, 11,000 feet. And up there he said to himself, I don't think I need to use the gun up here because if I shoot too many of them, I'll go down too fast and that's the end of me. So he just floated around at 11,000 feet for 14 hours. Eventually, floating into an approach corridor to LAX. Imagine the tower reaction when a commercial air pilot radioed in he had just passed a guy in a lounge chair with a gun across his lap at 11,000 feet. They decided they'd have to rescue Larry. So they sent a helicopter to snag him. 
But every time the helicopter got close, the wind from the rotors pushed the chair away. Finally, they managed. He got in, they took him back to LAX. As soon as he got off the helicopter, the authorities put him in handcuffs and arrested him. And a newsman ran up to him and said, Mr. Walters, what'd you do that for? And his answer was, a guy can't just sit around. Now, strange as it may seem, I maintain that there is a good deal of similarity between, between what Larry Walters did that day and Israel at a place I'll call First Ebenezer. Uh, a place in Israel where there was a stone that marked the spot where somebody set up that rock somewhere to remember something God had done. A stone that had a name, Ebenezer, meaning up to this point, God has helped us. <coughs> At Old First Ebenezer, Israel did what Larry Walters did that day. They just launched into a project without thinking or planning ahead. Nobody knows where First Ebenezer was. It doesn't matter. It could be anywhere. The sentence that begins the account is simple, and it just sounds so innocent. There, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. But simple as it sounds, it describes something as foolish as Larry Walters sitting in a chase lounge with 45 helium balloons lifting him up and a BB gun for flight control. Noticeably absent in Israel's computations is God. First, Ebenezer proved to be a stone of stumbling. These were the days, the writer said in chapter 3, and we heard it last week, when the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. People didn't pay much attention to God. And the ensuing battle at first Ebenezer is a wonderful illustration of that. Here's a people at first Ebenezer who have what I would call an in-case God. A God who's just there in case you need him. He'll show up. Don't worry. He'll take care of things. Don't let it bother you. And it bothered them when they found themselves, at, figuratively speaking, at 11,000 feet in a lawn chair, saying, how in the world did this happen? And what do we do to get here? And how are we going to get down again? 4,000 corpses littered the ground all around them. The elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring this defeat on us today before the Philistines? Here's the great assumption. God's people so often just assume he's there. And they do it without consulting. And then when it seems he isn't there anymore, they wonder why. And their frantic question is evidence of their neglect. 
First Ebenezer reminds us not to neglect God. Well, then Israel did another foolish thing. Did you catch it? They considered God now, but they still didn't consult with him. And what they did was a little bit like Larry Walters picturing him, picture him here in his chase lounge with those balloons up above, the BB gun over his legs, putting a Bible under the gun just in case. They brought the Israelites, now listen to this, they brought, quote, the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Every word, every phrase in that is just ringing with awe. But they had merely substituted for their in-case God an encased God. They ran back to wherever it was and got God's box and assumed he was in it and took it out with them and said, <coughs> this will keep us safe. They exchanged their neglect for naivete. And then they lost the box too. That was the worst blow. This time, 30,000 more troops lie on the ground dead. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. The Israelites have been defeated by the Philistines. But when he learned that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts was stolen, that's when old Eli fell over backwards, broke his neck, and died. And the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel and a dark chapter in Israel's history ends with these grim words, the glory <clears throat> has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Finally, realizing how empty life was neglecting God and how shallow life was simply assuming you could take God along like a good luck charm, something wonderful began to happen. All the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And that's when the story of what I'm calling Second Ebenezer started. We don't know where Second Ebenezer was either, but Samuel set up another rock. Same name, same meaning, same message. But this time it marked the spot where God's people began to deal with God again. Not to assume God's presence. Not to try to arrange God's presence by bringing him along. But to get on their knees and ask for God's presence. A stone marked the spot where Israel once again recognized their need for God by saying always saying, hither to, up till now, up to this point, right to here, God has been our leader. I urge you as a congregation to say that. Ebenezer, uh, hither to, up till now, from the very beginning to this very moment, God has been reminding us how much we need him. Not just an idea about him, not just a tradition about him, not just a teaching about him, but him, 
hitherto, up till now. <clears throat> Remember that God has all along been helping us recognize that we can't just assume his presence or carry him along with us, store him for a week in the sanctuary and come back next Sunday to talk with him again, or to store him in the archives of our minds, but to invite him to live in our hearts and in our lives. Hitherto, up till now, all along. God has helped us over the years, and even now, recognize that we have to rid ourselves of the foreign gods. Gods that go by the name of Baal and Ashtoreth, but also gods that go by names like reputation and position and net worth and influence and correctness. Up till now, God has been showing us that. Up till now and over the years, God has helped us to pour out our hearts like water, confessing our sins, acknowledging our sins, and to know that our greatest enemy was not Philistia then, <clears throat> and it's not Russia or China today, and it's not even inflation or taxation or crime or terrorism. Our greatest enemy is the nearly incurable inclination we have to pay no attention to God, even while we're gathering in his name. Up till now and all along, God has been saying that, helping us to recognize that we need always to be dependent on him. And despite our name and our renown and our resources and our resourcefulness, we too must not stop crying out to the Lord our God. Hitherto, up till now, through the glory days and in some gory days, at the high points and at the low points, when we were on our knees and when we wouldn't bend them, when we were making a difference and when we wouldn't be different, up to this time, up to now, God has been our guide. And in knowing that and reflecting on that and remembering that, there is more than a hint, not just of hitherto, but henceforth. Not just up till now, not just to this point, but because of being with us all the way up to this point from now on as well. God will guide. God will lead. God will instruct. Which means that the future is bright with hope and tomorrow is as certain as God is if we walk and talk and pray and learn and plan and survey and work with him, he will still be with us yet. Not far from Lincoln, Kansas, stand a collection of some very unusual gravestones. They were put there many, many years ago by a man by the name of John Davis. John Davis was a farmer, but he was a self-made man and very conservative financially, and he made a lot of money. But he did it at the cost of alienating everyone around him. He had no friends. He even alienated his family, <coughs> everyone except his wife. And when she died, 
before he did, he commissioned a sculptor to make a sculpture involving her to put on her grave. And the sculpture came up with a rather sizable sculpture of John Davis and his wife sitting on a love seat together, and that marked the spot where she was buried. Davis liked it so much, he commissioned the sculptor to do another one. This one was a sculpture of him laying a wreath on her grave. And he liked that one so much, he ordered a third of her laying a, grief, a wreath on his grave later on. And he used all of his considerable wealth to make those three stones. And some years later, he died. A grim-faced, angry, lonely man and a resident of the county poorhouse. And all the monuments he commissioned now stand as monuments sinking in the Kansas soil, but monuments to time and vandalism and neglect. Monuments to spite. Monuments to a self-centered, unsympathetic life. Well, somewhere one day in Palestine, there was a stone, a second memorial stone with a simple name. It wasn't even printed on the stone or engraved. It was just in the hearts of those who knew why it was there. Ebenezer. Up till now, God has helped us. That no doubt crumbled into dust long before John Davis's gravestone started to crumble. But the message from that stone has been our mainstay as a congregation through the years. God is helping us and has helped us to this point. And it functions now as our motivation to move into the future. Because he has been with us in the past, we know he always will be. We go into that unknown with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message we hear from it that reminds us so much of ourselves, even though the circumstances in Israel seemed so different. Remind us, Lord, of all the things you've done to bring us to this point and of all the faith and confidence that gives us to go from this point into the future. Remind us this morning at this table as well of the greatest monument of all, a cross, that now is empty because the Christ who gave his body and his blood for us lives again forever and leads us to our eternal home. Thank you for that confidence with which we can come to the table this morning. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.